0: Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone! What are we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region, Galilee. In this closing part of chapter 1, Mark is going to reveal to us and share with us a glimpse, a day in the life of Jesus. And we're going to follow Jesus throughout that day. And the day will launch early in the morning and it will continue into the afternoon and the evening. This is the day that will launch the earthly ministry of Jesus. And the day is marked by power and authority. Earlier, he's called a group of disciples and with power and authority, the process will begin of changing their lives and Jesus will demonstrate power and authority over demons in verses 21 through 28. Power and authority over disease later in verses 29 through 34 and verses 40 through 45. Power, in part for the believer, comes when we begin to rely on the Holy Spirit and depend on God For us, power comes in ways that we can't even imagine through prayer and submission and humility to to the Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus calls his disciples, we're taken into the synagogue in Capernaum in verses 21 through 35. And so Mark records the morning, the afternoon, the evening. In Mark's gospel, remember, Jesus is presented as the servant Savior of God. And we expect a servant to be under authority and to take orders. But this is a servant who possesses authority and is ready to exercise authority. <coughs> we have seen the authority that he has exercised over the destiny of the disciples, and now he will demonstrate his ability to exercise authority over demons. And later over disease. And so how does he begin his ministry? This becomes an important point for each and one who has ever prayed and thought about a ministry that God is assigning to them. Jesus will begin his ministry in worship, in teaching, and in fellowship. He will seize the opportunity to worship in the synagogue. He will teach in verse 21. He will astonish the congregation with his teaching and with his power and authority in verse 22. He will expose one man's invisible, internal torment. He will expose the torment and provide the opportunity for healing and deliverance. We begin with his authority. Look again in verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. Observant Jews in the first century would gather during the time of the sabbath they would also gather on monday and they will would gather on thursday the picture that you're seeing on the screen right now is the ruins of the second century synagogue that was placed in in capernaum after jesus is already gone after Pe- after peter and, and james and john are already gone some of you who have gone to israel with me or you've been to israel on your own you've been to this particular synagogue and the synagogue Underneath it is the foundation of the synagogue where Jesus would have went into this particular place and delivered this man. As a matter of fact, that may not look like a whole lot to you. But that basalt black rock that you see under the white limestone is the foundation of the original synagogue that Jesus and his disciples would have entered into. Where the events of the story that we're learning about this morning took place. And we learned several different things. Obviously, this this event is rooted historically in a real place, in a real time. Does Jesus attend synagogue services? What do you think the answer is? Yes, he's an observant Jew. The next question. Do you suppose the congregation had people who were imperfect who went? See, you're laughing because you already have read the story and you go, well, I guess if you're struggling with demonic possession, I think that that's an indication that something isn't quite right. Jesus will take the opportunity to teach. And once again, we see that very familiar word immediately. There is a sense of urgency. There's a sense of excitement, but there's also a sense of opportunity. And I want you to note that Jesus begins His ministry with the opportunity to worship but also the opportunity to teach. Let me ask you a question. Do you look for opportunities to honor the Lord with your ministry gift? Because I'm going to suggest to you that your ministry gift is linked to worship and it's linked to fellowship and it's linked to discipleship. And so... We have to be careful about our time and our opportunities, knowing that God will open doors and close doors. But Jesus seizes the opportunity. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. You may think that the opportunity to serve will always be there. But I'm going to suggest to you, that the door opens and the door closes. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the context of marriage and Christian service, he writes, And I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Paul is basically saying... I'm inviting you to participate in ministry, not for the purpose of putting a leash on you. And by the way, the moment that you decide to participate in the children's ministry, the moment you decide to, to participate in men's ministry, women's ministry, whatever student ministries, whatever ministry that God has gifted you in and entrusted you with, is it going to take time? Yes. Is it going to mean sometimes uh, restrictions? Yes. Yes. Paul says, look, I'm not inviting you to do this in order to put restrictions on you, but rather that you could manifest that for which God has gifted you, called you, redeemed you and reconciled you. So Jesus begins. And in verse 22, it says, look what it says. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. By the way, the word translated astonished is very expressive in the original language. The literal meaning is to be struck in the mind. Um, My friend Raul Rees in Southern California, he has a favorite expression. When something is extraordinary, Raul will say, I can't believe it, that blows my mind. And it, it may sound culturally interesting, but it really captures the meaning of this text. When we use that expression, it blows my mind. That's the kind of sense of astonishment that is taking place and the authority of Jesus erupts in John's gospel so that when it says, that, he, um, that they were astonished at the teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were used to appealing to other sources, Gamaliel or Hillel. As a matter of fact, the English word authority in its root means out of the original stuff. I don't understand the appeal. I, I have to confess I didn't watch the royal wedding. But there is something about it that is interesting. There's a series of unbroken coronations that have taken place since 1066. And typically when you're talking about authority, what does Mark mean when he says he taught them as one having authority? You're going to the original stuff. Jesus teaches with original authority rather than derived authority. As a matter of fact, Jesus has authority in and of himself. Timothy Keller writes, quote, he didn't just clarify something that they already knew. He didn't simply interpret the scripture in the way that teachers of the law did. His listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives As the author, and it left them dumbfounded in the 1970s. Carly Simon had a very big hit, strumming my pain with his fingers, singing my life with his word, killing me softly. She sings this this song about, about a man who begins to pick up his guitar and he begins to speak. And all of a sudden, her inner world is exposed that's part of the, 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 the capturing meaning that is taking place. Jesus comes into the synagogue and he begins to speak. And somehow everyone listening begins to understand he's speaking to me. He's speaking to my heart. He's speaking to my circumstances. He's speaking about the emptiness. He's speaking about the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. We often think of God as our creator and rightly so. The Bible teaches that Jesus is our creator. Paul the Apostle wrote in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, For by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him. And for Him. Paul writes, He is before all things. And in Him, all things consist. The original language says, It means the glue that combines the substance of reality is held together by virtue of the identity of Jesus. This is why we as Christians... We accept the authority of Jesus. When Jesus speaks, we listen. There was a man named Phillips who wrote a book called The Ring of Truth. It's an idiomatic expression that we listen to and, and we hear when someone is speaking and we go, that sounds right. That sounds True. Jesus doesn't simply claim authority. He possesses authority because everything that exists exists because of him, which leads us to maybe one of the most important questions that could ever be asked of you. Do you accept the authority of Jesus for your life? Do you look to Him, the author and the finisher of your faith, when you open the Bible and you hear Him speak and He speaks the words about your life do you accept his authority? Are you willing to conform your life to what he says rather than what you want? I read the story of a government surveyor who, who brought his theodolite. You, know, you may not know what a theodolite is. It's an instrument that measures precision angles on a vertical and a horizontal plane. And so he's a surveyor. He comes to this farm alone and he calls the farmer and he basically asks permission to set up in a field nearby to take some reading. And, and the farmer doesn't really want to do it. And he's reluctant to do it and unwilling to let him into the field. And finally, the, the surveyor produces his papers. He explains he's there from the government, that the government has given him authority to enter the field, that he can go anywhere in the country he can take whatever readings he needs to. And so reluctantly, the farmer opens the barred gate. He allows the guy in and he goes to the opposite side of the field. And then he opens another gate that has the biggest, baddest bull in the state. And the bull starts running towards the surveyor and alarmed as he sees the bull approach. The farmer says, show him your credentials. Tell him how you have the authority to be there. It's interesting. the, The surveyor had the authority to enter, but he didn't have the power to resist the bull. And sometimes we think that way about Jesus. That Jesus has the power to enter our lives. But he doesn't have the power to resist the bull Because there are wild and wicked things that sometimes manifest themselves in our lives. But part of the point of the passage that we are going to discover is that Jesus doesn't overwhelm the demon with credentials. He doesn't flash his badge. He doesn't point to his diploma. One of the wonderful things about working for the FBI is you find yourself under unusual circumstances for good and for bad. There was an FBI agent who was having lunch at, a, of all places, a sandwich shop where they're piling, You know, they put the beef on the sandwich, and he felt like he didn't get enough beef. He pulls out his FBI credential and he goes, FBI, more beef! And the guy starts piling the beef on top of the sandwich, and I'm thinking, you can't abuse your authority. You don't pull your credentials to get stuff that you want. Jesus doesn't pull his credentials in order to get simply stuff that he wants. Jesus wants to invade your heart and your life for the purpose of redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness and freedom. Other teachers relied on other people's thoughts, other people's ideas, other people's applications. People for hundreds of years and thousands of years would pour over the biblical text, but not Jesus. Other teachers stressed duty and form and ritual, but Jesus has the power to overcome trial and overcome suffering. Jesus speaks of the heart and of the life and of the soul and of the the spirit. Other teachers taught religion and Jesus teaches relationship and life. Other teachers point people to God and Jesus is God. And all of a sudden, they understand something. People would cobble together twisted images of a picture of God that they was, would hope would be true. But Jesus, in high definition, reveals the mind of God and the heart of God and the will of God. And by the way... All Bible teachers struggle with tradition versus authority, and form versus power, and religion versus life, and profession versus possession. But all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and he speaks about what is real, and what is important, and what is valuable. And as he speaks, look what happens in verse 23 a man's torment is revealed. Look at verse 23. Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out. Now, the Bible teaches that we live in a physical world. The world in which we live, according to the Bible, is real. That is a real seat that you're sitting in. That's a real chair or a real circumstance, no matter who you are. If you're listening to this program and you happen to be jogging and you look around you and you see the wind or you see the person next to you, the physical reality that surrounds us is a real world. But the Bible also says that there is an invisible world. There's an unseen spiritual world. And that unseen and invisible world is inhabited by interdimensional beings, angels and demons who are able to exist in one world and also exist in the other world. By the way, the Bible records instances of demon possession in all four gospels. In the synagogue here, in Gadara, in Mark chapter 5, and by the way, when we get to Mark chapter 5, we're going to have a whole lot more to say about demons and demon possession. I'll answer questions like, can a Christian become demonically possessed? A mute is healed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, but clearly the text says he's been invaded by a demon. A girl, a little girl from Tyre and Sidon is healed at the request of a broken hearted mother who comes to Jesus and begs for her daughter's life. A man broken hearted, a father brings his son at the base of Mount Hermon and pleads with Jesus to heal his broken son a broken hearted father and a broken hearted son come to Jesus and ask for relief. As a matter of fact, a blind and a deaf man will be healed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, then Luke chapter 11, verse 14, and it is this expelling of unclean spirits which will bring a suggestion on the part of the religious leaders that Jesus does this power because he's in league with the devil. And they'll seal their own fate. The synagogue didn't seem to provide safety from demon possession. The text says there was a man with an unclean clean spirit and the bible will often use that term unclean and i know what some of you are thinking when you hear the word unclean you might be thinking not clean but i think you would be missing the point because demons are filthy they are perverse they are disgusting you know the bible teaches several facts about demons One of the facts that it doesn't teach is their origin or their development. We speculate about where they may have come from. We suggest that when God created the heavens and the earth and the angels sing, that angels, beings, real beings, for whatever reason that we don't quite understand or know exact details Rebelled against God and resisted God and rejected the plan of God and the person of God and they became demons. The Bible does teach us things that we do know for sure. They have names according to Luke chapter 8 verse 30 and Revelation chapter 9 verse 11. They speak, we learn right here in Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 8 verse 29. They know who Jesus is according to Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4 verse 34 they are aware of a future judgment and a permanent condemnation, according to Matthew chapter eight, verse twenty nine. They're able to distinguish the saved from the unsaved, according to Revelation chapter nine, verse four. They are able to formulate a Satan centered systematic theology, according to first Timothy chapter four, verse one, where it says that there is such a thing as doctrines of demons. They possess great strength, Exodus 8, Daniel chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. They experience fear, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 28, and James chapter 2, verse 19. They display disdain, Acts chapter 16, verse 15. They are unclean. They will be cast into the lake of fire, according to Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, and Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 6. In over 35 years of ministry, I may have had three, possibly four instances in my life of a circumstance where there was a real demon and it was a real demon that had manifested itself. Early on, when I was a very young man and I was going into a a hospital to pray for a woman who had cancer, I'm walking down a corridor and as I'm walking down the corridor, I hear my name. Gino! And I thought, who's calling my name? I don't see anyone in the corridor, and then I hear, Gino! And I'm thinking, this is really bizarre. And then I hear, Gino! And I walk past an open door, and there, strapped to a gurney, is a Cuban Haitian immigrant who's Teeth are all gone. Whose face is wrinkled? Her eyes are like fire. And she goes, That's Spanish for I'm thirsty. And then she said in Spanish, I'm burning. And then she goes, Gino. And I walked in the door. A psychiatric nurse is reading a magazine. She looks up at me and she says, Who are you? And I went, Gino. And she said, Are you a doctor? And I said, Sort of. And I understood something. But there's a real demon. And this person was in torment. And this person was screaming and spitting and screaming and spitting. And you know what I did? I walked out. See, you're laughing, but you you may not understand something if you think you can go toe-to-toe with a demon and you're not prayed up and you're not prepared and you don't have somebody there and you don't have a strategy not only of how you are going to confront the demon in Jesus' name I was ill-prepared and unequipped I had no idea later that I would later learn that I needed to be able to, in Jesus' name and authority, cast the demon out, but then to tell the demon to go to the place where Jesus would have the demon to go, because I have no idea and the consequences of casting a demon out where the person is unprepared or unwilling to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The synagogue doesn't seem to be a safety haven. The text doesn't tell us when he became possessed or why he became possessed. Warren Wiersbe presents an intriguing thought in his commentary. He writes, we wonder how many synagogue services that man attended without Revealing that he was demonized. It took the presence of the son of God to expose the demon. And Jesus not only exposed him. But commanded him to keep quiet about his identity. And depart from the man. What an interesting thought. How many times had he been to the synagogue? How many times did he participate in worship? And the word of God. Was he a regular church goer or a visitor? And if he was a regular church goer, how could he go to the synagogue and worship in the synagogue and hear the word of God and remain possessed by an unclean spirit? How does the man remain in bondage? And it just reminds me of how many times we show up in church in torment. And we have to ask and answer the question, what kind of a church do you go to where you never see Jesus or hear Jesus or understand the power of Jesus or experience the presence of Jesus to let you go? Can human beings be delivered from the power and forces of evil by the Lord Jesus? That is right. Does Jesus have the power and authority to seize the object of your torment and remove it from your life? And therein is the rub. What is it that's tormenting you this morning? What fear or uncertainty? Does it have to do with your children? Does it have to do with your husband or or your wife? Does it have to do with your family or your friends? Does it have to do with your nation? Does it have something to do with an addiction? Does it have something to do with some powerful hold that something has on your life? And you all of a sudden begin to understand something that when you, when you come to church, that the church service can't be so dead and so lifeless and so empty that people aren't confronted with what's going on inside of their heart. How is it possible that this man remained unconfronted, unconvicted, unconverted, spiritually dead? The Bible says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. That means that the whole world, in some sense, there is an influence, there is a power, there is something going on inside of the world in which we live. Where people are in bondage, they're in the grip of evil. How many unbelievers and make-believers sit in churches all over the world and they hear the Word of God week after week and month after month and year after year and they are unaffected by the message who refuse to believe the truth about their sin and who remain content to wallow in wickedness and embrace evil. And that's what happens if you show up in a church and Jesus happens to be there. Because if Jesus is in the church, he will knock on the door of your heart and he will expose the circumstances of what's going on inside of your heart and he will issue an invitation. He will tell you about his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and that there is hope and there is freedom and there is reconciliation. And this is exactly what happens in Acts chapter seven when Stephen begins to minister to the religious leaders of his day and he begins to remind them of the identity and the mission and the message of Jesus and how they took him and how they killed him and then the religious leaders said to Stephen we're going to kill you too and in Acts chapter 7 verse 51 Stephen says you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so do you and they picked up stones because they thought that if they could make the testimony of Stephen go away, if they thought that they could shut him up and shut his mouth, that the message would go away and they wouldn't have to be convicted anymore. You can shake hands and you can rub shoulders with believers. But have you ever abandoned your sin? Have you ever cried out to Jesus? Have you ever begged him to take control of your life? Have you ever asked him to pinpoint and put his finger on the source of torment and make it go away? Look what happens with the demons when they recognize Jesus. Look what it says in verse 24. Let us alone what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know you. You're the Holy One of God. The passage could be translated. What do you want with me? The Greek reads literally. T Hemen, Kai, Swai. Literally, the language says, What to us and to you? Vincent Taylor notes that in classical Greek, the question could mean, what have we in common? He thinks that it might mean, why do you meddle with us? Ezra Gould combines the two thoughts in his commentary, and he writes, what have we in common, which gives you the right to interfere with us? I think it captures the meaning. Demons have no interest In the redemptive work of Jesus. Demons have no interest in the forgiveness of Jesus and the redemption of Jesus and the reconciliation of the Father and peace. The expression, the expression is a complete separation of interest. You're no savior to us. You have an ocean of mercy, but not for us. You have all the power in heaven and earth to forgive sin, but there's no pardon for us. Here's a question for you Are the demons reacting to the presence of Jesus? Are they reacting to the words of Jesus? Is it possible that they're reacting to both? And how do they react? With rage. And with rationalization, when the man screams, let us alone, is there more than one demon? Or is the demon so identified with the man that both man and demon recoil at the holiness and the purity and the identity of Jesus? I want you to note three things. The demon possessed man recognizes at least three things that he, number one, is completely different from Jesus. I want you to think about this for a moment. Rebellion and sin and pollution and perversion and defilement is Marked by this man, but Jesus has no sin. He is absolutely pure. He is absolutely meek. He is absolutely humble. The unclean spirit recognizes that Jesus has both the authority and the power to punish the demon, to destroy the demon. And you know what will happen? Demons will hide and demons will rage and demons will rationalize. Do you know what a rationalization is? It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why you do what you do. Demons will do, demons will do whatever it takes to retain their host and continue sinning and rebelling against God. By the way, don't make the mistake of asking the wrong question. You might wonder, do I have a demon? Does my husband, my wife, my brother, my sister, my child, do they have a demon? I think you're asking the wrong question. And by the way, when I get to Mark chapter 5, I will answer that question. You need to ask yourself a different question at this point. It isn't, do I have a demon? The question, the right question to ask at this point is, am I a demon? What do you mean? In what sense? I'm not talking about a fallen angel in rebellion against God. I'm talking about a fallen person. I'm talking about a weak person, a tortured human being who continues to resist God and reject God and rebel against God. Because let me help you understand something. That demons and humans are different. You see, a demon is going to hell. There is no forgiveness and there is no hope for a demon. But there is hope for you and forgiveness for you. There is hope And forgiveness, there is life, and there is love, and there is reconciliation and cleansing. The difference between a demon and a human is a demon can't change, and a human must change, but can't. Apart from the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and the hope that's found in Jesus, demons know they will be judged and condemned forever. They continue to sin. Human beings may know that they're wrong and they may know that, that what they're doing is wrong in the life that they're living and the direction that they're going, but they think that at the last minute, that at the last minute they'll be able to cry out to God and cry out to Jesus and they'll experience relief from their torment but guess what you haven't been promised let alone the rest of this message let alone the rest of the day let alone the rest of the week I don't know how many people have sat in your chair and listened to message after message from this pulpit Turn from your sin, turn to the Savior. Turn from your sin, turn to the Savior. And they they get up out of their chair and they walk out of this building. And they, in their mind, are convinced that there's one more moment. There's one more week where they will be able to make the lasting change. But the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to turn. The Bible teaches in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was made known in part so that the work of the devil in my life could be destroyed, but also so that the work of the devil in your life could be destroyed. So it could be done away with. You know, it's interesting to me, That the demon identifies Jesus. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Demons confess that Jesus is Lord. But they don't do it to the glory of God. In James chapter 2 verse 19 it says, You believe that there is one God and you do well. The devil also believes and tremble. Now think about this for just a moment. Wicked Unclean demons are willing to concede that Jesus Christ is Lord, but you're not. You know, there's a list that I came across called the celebrity atheist list. And there's also an agnostic list and an ambiguous list. And on the atheist list, I found the name Woody Allen and Lance Armstrong and Isaac Asimov and John Carpenter and Jody Foster and Bill Gates and Christopher Hitchens and Todd McFarlane and Andy Rooney and Kurt Vonnegut and Steve Wozniak and Joss Whedon that's just I'm just picking names at random and when I saw Joss Whedon you may not know that but he's a film producer and a movie director and he's the guy who invented the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I heard an interview with him one time as he talked about his preoccupation with the occult and the supernatural and he said I am a flaming atheist I absolutely positively do not believe that there's a God and he said but I'm fascinated by devotion I'm intrigued how a person would want to honor and respect and worship something that they can't see or taste or touch or or feel he's absolutely curious whether or not there is something unseen invisible So you want to add your name to the celebrity atheist list? Demons won't. They don't claim to be atheists and they don't claim to be agnostic. They don't claim to be skeptical. They don't even claim to be ambiguous. They know the truth. And they know that their fate is sealed. The world and the world system, apart from Jesus, share the demons message. Remember what I asked you? If you resist God and you reject God and you rebel against God, then how are you different from a demon? And how is your message any different from the demon's message? Jesus, what do I have to do with you? Wealth says... What do I have to do with you, Jesus? Leave me alone. I'm fine. I'm secure. I'm comfortable. I'm growing. Power says, leave me alone, Jesus. I'll find social, political, scientific solutions to the emptiness inside of my heart. Ego says, leave me alone, Jesus. I'm going to seek recognition and attention and esteem and honor and praise as I want. The flesh says, leave me alone, Jesus. I'll get excitement. I'll indulge myself. I'll stimulate myself. I'll relax. I'll release I'll escape I'll party I'll distract myself I don't need you what do I have to do with you we have a demon in the house of God we have a demon in the house of God in the person of a man we have a demon in the house of God in the person of a man excited by a sermon We have a demon in the house of God in the person of a man excited by a sermon, willing to confront Jesus. And Jesus responds. The demons are in dread. They fear destruction and rightly so. They recoil and they are repelled by the words of Jesus. And this gives us an insight into their character. But it also gives us an insight into our character, doesn't it? Do the words of Jesus, do you find them repugnant and repelling? Or do you find them filled with hope and filled with love and filled with mercy and filled with freedom and filled with forgiveness the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was in all things made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And all of those things that pertain to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. That's good news. And look what it says in verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet, come out of him. Again, the Greek language is graphic. Graphic. In the original language, it says, be muzzled. Be quiet is a polite way of saying, shut your demon trap. By the way, it's the same word found in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter four, verse thirty five. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And it says, and when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and it did not hurt him. Jesus doesn't require the attestation of a demon. He's not looking for a demon's endorsement of his ministry. This last week, after years of silence, I heard Charles Manson recently warn the world about global warming. Can you imagine? You believe in, embrace... And even promote global warming. And here's Charlie Manson with his little swastika carved on his forehead going, watch out for global warming. Are you thinking, even if you think that there's some scientific credibility, do you want Charlie Manson as your spokesman? Yeah, he's lost whatever credibility for whatever cause he might want to promote. The demon has no intention of following Jesus. The witness Jesus wants from the man who makes a deliberate decision to follow him in faith and in faithfulness. That's what Jesus is looking for. And he casts the demon out with what? And this is critical. Look what it says. With a word. Jesus casts the demon out with a word. I want you to pause for just a moment. I want you to say, Jesus casts the demon out with a word. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus speaks, and what he speaks happens. We know the word of God. We depend upon the word of God. And think about what's happening here. We confront Unclean spirits of this world with the testimony of Jesus, with the words of Jesus, the chains of bondage and fear and terror are broken by a word. Do you realize that the moment that Jesus says. Darkness, go light, come. Freedom. Forgiveness. Hope. The moment that Jesus opens up his mouth and says, come to me, come to me, and I'll give you hope and I'll give you freedom, come to me and I'll forgive you. Come to me and the weird and empty and wicked life that you have. I will redeem you. Jesus wields words with authority because his words are true. The commands of Jesus are authoritative because they're righteous. The appeals of Jesus are authoritative because they're prompted by his matchless love. The decisions of Jesus are authoritative because they're based on his infinite wisdom. The final judgment of Jesus is authoritative because the father has said in John 5, that the Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of God. And in verse 26 it says, and when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. The word convulsed means torn. Sparazzo. It means torn apart. I want to point something out to you. At the command of Jesus, the demon leaves. But I also need to share something with you. Demons rarely go quietly. And neither does this one. He screams. He's torn. The demon doesn't go quietly. Because the truth is, like the children of Israel who were told to occupy the land. The land was already occupied by people who were occupying the land. And the Lord said, I want you to go in and these people have to go and you have to stay. And the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the moment that you re- he redeemed you and reconciled you and forgave you, there were things in your mind and there were things in your heart and there were things in your past that don't want to leave. But guess what? If you're willing to allow Jesus to do the work of redemption, forgiveness, and expulsion, Jesus will do that. You know, when I was a young man, I stood in line for hours in Hollywood when the premiere of The Exorcist opened in Hollywood, the first time it showed anywhere. And it's an evil and frightening film. In the movie, two men's lives are destroyed in the process of allegedly removing an evil spirit. And I need to point something out to you that it is not religious ritual or mumbo jumbo that results in the expulsion of unclean spirits. It is the person of Jesus in reality. And there is no redemption. Or release For the person who simply wants redemption and release. But they also reject Christ. Does Jesus have the power and authority to command demons to flee? What do you think the answer is? That is the right answer. And so when Jesus shows up. And speaks. When Jesus shows up. Something amazing happens. Look at verse 27 and 28. The crowd's response. They were amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this for? What what authority he commands even the unclean spirits? And they obey him. Remember, Jesus had earlier said, the kingdom is coming. But guess what? The kingdom has now arrived. How do we know? Because the moment... Darkness becomes light. The moment that demons begin to flee, guess what? The kingdom of God has arrived. And by the way, the word translated doctrine means to teach. We... Fill that word with a theological connotation. But here, I think it has the broad meaning of teaching. In other words, he says, what new teaching is this? In the sense that the teaching of Jesus is with authority and power. So much so that even invisible, unclean spirits respond. And then verse 28 says, and immediately his fame spread throughout the region all around Galilee. And when it says immediately, it doesn't mean weeks later. It doesn't mean months later. It doesn't even mean days later. We have an expression now in our culture and society that when somebody uploads something to YouTube, it goes viral. And that's exactly what's happened in a a historical sense. Jesus opens his mouth. This event takes place. The people are amazed. Remember, the day begins in the morning, but by the time afternoon and evening comes, people will get their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their family, their friends, everyone who is afflicted, everyone who is diseased, everyone who is infirmed, everyone who has a demonic spirit, everyone, everyone who is in trouble. They're going to start to bring them to Jesus. Someone says, Faith sees the invisible, believes the incredible, receives the impossible. Do they know everything about Jesus? No. By the way, for those of you who can't wait till Mark chapter 5, I need to tell you something. Salvation provides safety from possession. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And guess what? People will begin to see the invisible. And believe the incredible. And receive the impossible. Faith begins to see something that they've never seen before. That the emptiness and the loneliness and the hurt and the pain and the guilt can go away. They believe they believe the incredible. They believe that Jesus can heal them and save them and forgive them and reconcile them. And then they can receive the impossible. You know what the impossible is? That you could be redeemed at all. You know what the impossible is? That you don't share the same fate in the future of demons. It is amazing to me that I could be saved. I know this is going to come as a shock and a surprise to you, but I'm even amazed that God could save somebody like you. But He can! Faith sees the invisible believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. Heavenly Father, since salvation provides safety from demon possession, Lord, I I pray that for that person who has lived in a dark and an empty place, Lord, that you would speak to their heart. Lord, I pray that they would not play games with their future. I pray that they would be willing to respond in faith and submission to the invitation of love. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for that invitation that Jesus extends, that if we would believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that there is forgiveness and hope and salvation and life. And Lord, I pray for that person who's in a private place of torment. That Lord, even when I said that word torment, something or someone came into their mind. Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would place your hand on that thing and expel it from their life. And I pray that they would trust You and submit to You and allow Your Holy Spirit to strengthen them for the life ahead. Lord, I pray that You would give them the wisdom to pray about what it means to love You and to know You and to depend upon You for everything that life brings. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as we follow Jesus, into the afternoon and into the evening, that we will once again be amazed of what Jesus has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.